Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. I would hope that when we choose to be charitable with our incomes or actions, we want our sacrifices not to be wasted or to end up hurting those we're trying to help. Sadly, at least in my experience, it's difficult to find programs or organizations that live up to that criteria. But at least with one group in Middle Tennessee, I can attest that given what I see, they succeed where other charities slouch. My guest today, Peggy Gardner, is the program director of this establishment called Greater Faith Community Action Corporation. She's not only going to give us some stories of both success and failures, but give us a look at some of the methods they found that helps folks go from rock bottom to becoming productive citizens. We'll start off by it helping folks get to know you a little bit. And you had told me a story that when you were in your 20s and you were getting into social work, uh, you worked with uh, mentally handicapped and physically handicapped folks, that you kind of went through a bit of an activist stage. It was triggered by something real. First of all, talk about that. Well, when I started, I really had no idea. Um, A lot of the injustice that... uh, took place with people with disabilities, not just physical, but mental disabilities. And we should say, you mentioned HATS. HATS was an acronym for a... Habilitation and Training Services. Right. And they provided services for um, adults with disabilities and also with children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just really burned me up, I guess, <laughs> for lack of a better word, when I saw the things that were happening in my own backyard, in my own community. People weren't having the opportunities to go in certain buildings because they didn't have ramps, they didn't have, um, they weren't adequate as far as people that couldn't hear. And so I just kind of got fired up and uh, started really uh, being a voice for them. And I guess in the process of doing that, looking at my own self as an African-American woman, (laughs) begin to see a lot of things that I pretty much had, probably took a blind eye to that was going on because I grew up in the country and we really didn't, wasn't addressed by my parents, you know, we, we didn't think that way. So uh, my first encounter was um, pretty much uh, at a restaurant uh, here in Springfield and um, met uh, a man that was in the Klan. Now he entered... Did he introduce himself, or did he have a hood on, or what? <laughs> it, it wasn't a hood, but it was a cap that he had on his head, and it had Proud Clan. And I thought, surely this is not the Ku Klux Klan. This right. is something else, you know, the Swan Clan or yeah, right. this Klan. Uh, and so I kind of laughed and asked him about his cap. Uh-huh. And uh, he came over to my table and sat down, and he told me exactly what the cap meant. In his mind, what was the Ku Klux Klan? The Ku Klux Klan was a great organization that kept uh, people from being um, abused, mistreated uh, for the pure white race. Uh-huh. He felt like that there was no protection for them. He felt like that other minorities had protection, um, that the white race did not. And so he felt like that it was his God-given responsibility to make sure that they were protected. And mm-hmm. if that meant that he had other races had to um, be tortured, 
Golly. Uh, yeah. So you uh, said that, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And, and uh, was not afraid to say it. <laughs> so because he wasn't afraid to say it, I, I wasn't afraid to ask more questions. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I wanted to know what, what was he protecting them from. Right. And one of the things he said was he didn't uh, want the pure white race to be contaminated mm. uh, by other races. And right. he felt like that if they weren't protected against that, that the pure white race would just completely go away. Right. And uh, he kept saying that it was this God-given responsibility as a God-fearing clan uh-huh. to make sure that the white race was protected and that they would continue and he always felt like that the white race was going to be just kind of go away one day because mm-hmm. um, they weren't being protected. Well, yeah, this has come up in other podcasts. There was the eugenicist movement. Uh, it wasn't just the white race who wanted to keep it pure, but there was some in the black community right. who, who thought that a lot of blacks were riffraff and all that kind of thing. But yeah. So I remember when you told me this story <laughs> that there kind of ended up being a bizarre twist to it. Well, we became friends. <laughs> <laughs> and when you told me this, I was like, only you, Peggy. Only you. Well, we became friends. We had a lot in common. And I think it kind of shocked him, too, that uh-huh. I like fishing. Uh-huh. Uh, I was from the country. Uh, I like steak with gravy and onions. And, uh-huh. we, you know, we talked about the different foods. And I think it got to the point where I saw him more than just the Klan, and he saw me more than just an mm-hmm. um, African-American woman or right. black woman. Right. You know, he, he began to see me just as Peggy. Uh-huh. And uh, when I came in, he'd come to the table, and we would talk about everything but race, right. um, his kids. Do you feel like you helped change his mind on some stuff? I think it helped change both of our minds because in my mind, uh, the Klan were horrible people. Right. You know, I'd seen what <laughs> in history what, what happened. So um, meeting somebody that truly believed that what they were doing was, was right. right, and then him meeting me and seeing that I wasn't a threat. Right. <laughs> I didn't want to have his babies. <laughs> <laughs> That we just developed a a friendship. Uh It was more to him than just that, and it's more to me than just my color. And I I do believe that that helped both of us. Yeah, that helped both of us. Well, there's a great you know Sunday school lesson there because I mean (laughs) Jesus obviously hung out with the people that were jerks, and uh, that's that's the only way to win them over. But of course, these days, I mean, of course, it's probably every generation we're so polarized. Right, we just throw brick bats Mm -hmm. over the fence and and demonize the opposition. Right. Right. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. I see my brother. Yeah. So we're sitting here in an office, and you're kind of a director, I suppose, of a small empire <laughs> of an organization that's trying to help people, help people get over and help people to get actually on their feet and not become dependent. Right. So, first of all, talk about how this got started because it's quite extensive at this point and it seems overwhelming. And, of course, these things don't happen overnight. So, talk about how it got started and what was the first step and all that. Okay. Well, it started at church. (laughs) Um, People would come just about every Sunday morning or Wednesday afternoon. They would either need their utility bills paid or they would need food or they would come in and you could tell they were high. Um, Kids weren't well kept. And uh, we, well, my uh, husband's father, who was pastor at that time, the only way he knew to help was to just pay the light bill or um, 
let's everybody take up a collection and we're going to buy the kids clothes. And we did that and it never ended. Right. <laughs> it was next Sunday they needed, it was the same family needing the same thing and nothing was getting better. And so when uh, my husband became pastor, we wanted to try to help, but help smart and still be Christ centered. And sometimes it can be hard because people think that if it's faith-based and if it's Christ-centered and if it's a church, that you should just hand stuff out. But helping smart, we wanted people to become more independent and not dependent on the church for all of their needs or dependent on the system. So um, the accountability part came in is that when people did want their utility bills paid, we came up with a emergency relief fund committee. And it's almost like you're going to the bank. And you're going to fill out a form, and they're going to see where you work, how much you make, (laughs) and make you accountable. I have to imagine there was some blowback. Oh, Lord, yes, yes. They said, this is not a bank, this is a church. And it's like, yeah, but this is helping you as well, because this is what happens in the real world. You go out, and you put down where you work, uh, and we didn't stop there. You know, we looked to see, have we helped this person within the past six months. And if we had, we would refer them to other resources in the community Mm -hmm. because we only help at least once or twice a year. We're not going to do it every month. One of the things that extended from the emergency relief fund and having people to come in and complete an application, where do you work, is that they didn't just stop there. They would see if you were without a job, then we started a job search for you. Uh, If you didn't have transportation to get to um, employment place, we would provide the transportation. If it was online and you weren't used to the computer, we had somebody available at the church that knew how to do that, and we would um, do applications online. We found out that the people that really wanted to do better, that really wanted to be helped, were so thankful that we weren't just giving them money. Okay. So let me ask you this, because... In the field that I'm at, the fraud is enormous. And in fact, when I actually meet somebody who really does need disability or assistance, I'm pretty shocked because right. most are, are running a scam. So, right. percentage-wise, if you could just guess it, ballpark it, mm-hmm. like how many people that were coming to you really did want to get out of that life cycle? I would say probably about thirty percent. Okay, that's pretty good. About thirty percent really wanted to get out of it. The other seventy percent, once they saw that the other people that were asking for help were actually getting jobs and they could buy their own car and mm-hmm. they seen that. Then they said, I want to talk to the emergency relief <laughs> ministry, cool. you know, yeah. because they saw this is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. This is not us penalizing you and saying the church is not going to help you anymore because you've all, you know, you've always asked for help, but that we're trying to help you smart and we're trying to get it to where you won't have to come to us. Let's make a change for a better We're going to bounce around a little okay. bit. So we just came from a couple of houses that you all own. Right. So talk about how you you started to buy some houses okay. and what your goal was with that. Well, the outreach ministry that we have at the church would go into Nashville and we would go to Hadley Park and we would uh, throw up our grill and we would grill food and uh, be there to give out uh, backpacks for the children that didn't have their supplies for school which led us to people that showed us that they lived under the bridge. And the people living under the bridge 
when I would go home and it would be raining real hard, I knew they were their little tents got washed away. Mm -hmm. So we would go back over there and we would give them food and it wasn't a solution. Well, let me ask this real quick. So you're in Springfield, which is about 40 minutes from Mm -hmm. Nashville. Why go all the way down there? And and we're we're actually, because you came from Brentwood, right? Well, it took me 40 minutes to get here from Nashville. (laughs) Oh, let's see this. That's probably true. I'm not the most aggressive driver. (laughs) It's about 35 miles. And um, we had people that were actually started coming to our church from Nashville. Oh, wow. Um, So they would tell us about an area. Okay. In Nashville that needed help, which was right around Hadley Park. So it was worse off than folks in Springfield. Exactly. Okay, that's why I was And so, at. yeah, so we, we went over and we would uh, grill, give away food, backpacks, and some of the people that did come to the park for the food didn't have anywhere to live. When we would give them the food or uh, backpacks, they didn't have anywhere to go. We offered to take them home in the van, and there was no home. Right. But they did show us where they were, and it was under the Jefferson Street Bridge, you know, under the, and they had little tents. And so uh, we would continue to go over there, give them food, which was a Band-Aid. It was not a solution. Some of them were on drugs. That's the reason they were homeless. And that became a whole other population of people. How do we help them? Um, And, of course, me and my husband, we had thought about um, a transitional home people on drugs because we've seen it work before, but we wanted to do it kind of different. We wanted it to be faith-based, and we wanted to meet the whole man, the Mm -hmm. the need of the whole man. So we saw some uh, property in Springfield that was just horrible, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it was better than a tent. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So we we, we, uh, purchased those homes for a little bit of nothing, and then we uh, asked some of the church members to help get it together, which we, we got it uh, livable, and uh, we'd go to the park. Neither one of us have ever been on drugs, so we didn't know <laughs> what to expect. We went under the bridge. We saw some of the men that we knew, one man in, man in particular named Jim. Jim, would you like a second chance in life? He was drunk, and he got up, and he followed uh, one of our ministers, Tori, uh, on the van, and uh, we took him to the house, fed him. The next morning, he woke up. He had no idea where he was. He thought he had been kidnapped by a panda bear. Because <laughs> the Tory looks, like Tory looks like a panda bear. And he didn't know where the heck Springfield was. And uh, we explained that we wanted to help. And he sobered up, uh-huh. and he didn't want to leave. Wow. He wanted to help. Actually, he became a house manager. After two years. Well, how did you get them off the drugs? Because there's all these programs, and they have a problem with people keep coming back, mm-hmm. or they, they or they never get off completely. A combination of things. Uh, we didn't pack the house with a lot of <laughs> five or ten men okay. in the house because each person will feed off the other. Okay, so you try to keep just a few yeah. people. Yeah, in if there. you got a craving. And somebody else, you get eight men in the house, somebody else is going to have their craving, and they're going to advise you, let's go. Uh-huh. So we, we try to uh, stay within three to four men to a home. There's constant counseling going on because there's a there's a route to why you started drinking in the first place. Mm-hmm. Try to get to know the families by talking to them. Of course, we have uh, some go to AA, Celebrate Recovery, and then there's a program that I actually teach on Saturday. It's called Overcomers. And that just hits our areas, overcoming a whole bunch of stuff. And just 
continuing to let them talk, let them be human, let them make mistakes, let them struggle, let them curse, mm-hmm. even though it's faith-based because if you're coming off of a drug you've been on for a long time, you're irritable, you're frustrated, and you have to have thick skin to know that they're not just targeting you, but this is hard. Mm-hmm. We had tremendous success. We've had some that uh, came three or four times, didn't make it, and we've had some that came in the third time and that stuck. Right. And we've uh, Jim, the one, the first person that came in, Jim came. He went back to school. Uh, he's married. He has a full-time job here, and he still lives in Springfield. So actually, he became a productive citizen of Springfield. Let's talk about Keith. Okay. <laughs> Keith was not just a um, on drugs, but Keith was a drug dealer in uh, Nashville. And he had been locked up for a while. When he got out of prison, went back to Nashville, he started selling drugs again, but this time he started using as well. And so got in a bad uh, predicament and um, also met him in Hadley Park. Uh-huh. <laughs> Hadley Park. He was not a part of the, the um, get being fed and he wanted no food or nothing. He was just laying there on the bench. He's just there overnight and we're interrupting his day. So somewhere between us being there in the evening, he sobered up. And uh, we were able to talk to him. He came back to Springfield because he had nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's the best place to meet a person is at rock bottom. That's where he was. He's not uh, the typical person that was in the home because he stayed for four and a half years. It's not typical. We Six months to a year, you transition out. Mm-hmm. We help you. Pr- we provide you with what you need to, to go. When he came to the home... He had a lot of he had a lot of problems. Uh, one of the problems was is that he had been a drug dealer, and he was using the product. Mm. So you had other people looking for him. <laughs> mm. So Springfield was a small uh, town tucked away, um, and we knew that about him. So there's some advantage to going to the city mm-hmm. and taking to the smaller the, the country where they're not going to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So um, with with him going through AA. Because there's no, we, we don't have a problem with, with AA. Um, I think anything that works, works. So right. we had AA, we had overcomers, we had, he had celebrated recovery. He had responsibilities at the church. He had to be accountable to uh, the men of the church. Uh, before he got a job, he helped out at our soup kitchen because we don't let anybody just sit around the house. You have to work. Uh, if you're not working, you will volunteer. And so he volunteered at our soup kitchen uh, until he was steady enough to get on a job. He started his job part-time. They took him on full-time. He had health insurance. Uh, he did not have total access to his money because now we're opening him up a checking account, mm-hmm. and he's learning how to pay bills. So Keith was an exception because there was a lot of things, a lot of dynamics he had to work through, But and he stayed four years. Oh, I'm crying. Have a hard question because I think a lot of people who try to help mm-hmm. eventually they have to come to a point like I can't help this guy like I don't have the resources or they don't want help or and you end up writing them off right. and so where do you draw the line you don't want to enable a person or get right. them addicted to basically like a mother mm-hmm. father thing like you become their parents right. 
but also don't give up on them completely. Right. And and you have to know your limits. If a person is not showing improvement or if they're not participating in what's required of them, then you have to take a, a real hard stance. Being faith-based and because you're affiliated with a church, sometimes you feel like you have to keep going on and on and on and on and on, and you become a revolving door, and you're not helping. You feel good about taking them back in, but you're really not helping. Yeah. It allows you to look down on other people exactly. who are not doing anything, but, exactly. but that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to be, you get to the point where you say, you know what, we're not helping, mm-hmm. and you give them other resources. Uh, we do have a board of directors, which kind of keeps us balanced because I was guilty of the fact where some people could get to me. They'd tell me the sad story, and I said, yeah, come on back, baby. (laughs) But I had to go to a board, and I had to present what was going on. And we have seven people on the board. Three are in the church, four in the community. And so if they say, no, this is it, um, We'll look at other resources, other placements for them, and we will provide transportation for them to get there. Mm -hmm. We're not the save-all. You know, our program doesn't work for everybody. Well, give me a, I guess, a failure story of somebody that didn't make it, or maybe ones you're kind of still holding out hope for. We've had some that come in, and um, they would, um, female in our our women's home, and women always look like they're just, you know, they cry and you think they're really into it and they're really doing it, doing a good job. And you get a call and they say, uh, so-and-so's been sleeping all day. She won't get up and do her chores or she's not getting up. And I go over there, automatically you know they're high. I strip the house down. There's no drugs in it. I can't find anything. But she's clearly just off her bonkers. So I finally flip over the mattress, nothing under the mattress, and there's a little slit in the mattress. And so I go ahead and rip it, and pills just fall out. Wow. And she's got her stash. And so she went out, stayed gone 30 days in in a rehab, restricted rehab, come back to us in two months, same thing. She's high again. I'm trying to find out where the drugs are. So she's out again. board says she needs to go out. She comes back again. She won't get a job. Now she's clean, but I don't want to work. I'm not going to work. If you don't work, you can't stay here. You have to pay rent. If you're not going to work, then you need to go to the soup kitchen and get your meals. You can't cook the food here because you didn't buy it. And so she had to leave again. And so I get calls from her all the time, and most of the time she's still high. But the hope is eventually she'll hit such a bottom that she'll right. mm-hmm. wake she'll, up. Yeah. She'll hit. My thing was in the beginning is I thought I could save everybody, mm-hmm. and but you can't. Yeah, you can't. I'll make a statement. And you can disagree if you want, but I, okay. I feel like in America it's very difficult to go hungry unless you're a child. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if there's a the, the ones that I always have compassion for, no problem is the child mm-hmm. for the most part. There are some rotten kids, but the adults I I have less compassion for. Mm -hmm. So talk about the children that sometimes get caught in all this, because obviously people have children and their parents may not be right, but they want to, as a parent, they still want to hold on to their child, but it may not be the best situation. And so give some stories about that. Well, we see a lot of kids come to the master's table, the soup kitchen Mm -hmm. with their parents. And uh, you just know, you know, that, that something's not right. Even though they're bringing their kid in there, they're afraid to sit down. 
are they looking at you, staring at you, and you know, you get those eyes, it's like, help me. Right. It's more going on than me being hungry. Mm-hmm. There's something else going on. And so we have people sign in at the master's table, and when we see that and you can tell that there's more than hunger going in that child, we do involve um, Children Protective Services to come out. And normally it's somebody that's been in the system before for abuse. Mm-hmm. Of a child, so it's not just the, the hunger that's that's going on. We see a lot of that at the soup kitchen. Either somebody's on drugs, the child doesn't look like it. You know, it's they're bringing him in on a Tuesday on a school day, and mm-hmm. it's a school age child, and they're coming in the soup kitchen with a parent. Right. And so. And just to give folks how horrible it can get. This was several years ago, but we both knew of an incident where a child was being pimped out by her father, and she was only, what, four or five mm-hmm. at the time? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Of course, you, you found the evidence firsthand, right. and it was just mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so horrific. It's, it's, it's horrible. And, yeah. and children are, you know, it, it, they get caught up in either the parents being so high on drugs so they don't even realize that this is their child, and even if they did, they wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't care. Or you've got um, people that it's not their child, and they come in the soup kitchen because they know we're gonna set it out uh, for the child, and it's not their child. So it, it's just not. And it's you, not their where child. do they get the kids? Just anywhere. They can have them on Central Avenue. There's so many kids that's in the uh, project area, the project housing over there. If they're just outside playing, come go to the soup kitchen with me. Wow. And they come in there, and you can tell them that there's because they say I'm fixing to go. Home. I'm ready to go home now. <laughs> so we had to get a little stricter with the soup kitchen, and it cut down on a lot of people coming in for food, uh, because now if you come in and you've been there more than three times, I'm coming in with jobs that are available in Springfield, and I'm going to sit with you while you eat <laughs> and ask if you enjoy your meal, and I'm going to ask you, uh, do you have employment? If you don't. Let me tell you about some of the jobs that are available. And they said, well, I, ain't got, I don't have transportation to get there. Well, I have a van right outside. Mm-hmm. And so when you finish your meal, I can take you uh, to the employment uh, office, and I'll sit with you and fill out an application. And you know right then if they're hungry because next week they'll, they won't be there. Right. <laughs> or so you have in. to even cut the food off if they're abusing yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. We've had people come in, and, and they need to go to the YMCA. Mm-hmm. They're that big. And they're eating, and they want a plate to go. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's not the mission right. of, of the master's table. Uh, we want you to sit down and get a good hot meal, but we don't want to feed you for the rest of your life. Right. Seeing you for more than a month is not successful mm-hmm. at the master's table because what the master's table is for you to sit down, get a hot meal, and how may I help you? Right. After you get full, because you're not going to talk to me when you're hungry, get your hot meal, then how can I serve you? What 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 has brought you to the master's table? Either you're homeless, you don't have a job, and that's when we start looking at other ways of helping. When we were in the car earlier, you were mentioning some grants that you had been given for some of your program, like to get a van and that type of thing. And my mind automatically assumed that they were coming from the federal government. And you said, oh, no, no, no. 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 <laughs> so 
I want you to tell me why you don't take from the federal government. I'm going to read you a quote. This is just some guy on the internet. Kyle Mann, we'll give him credit. (laughs) He says, Outsourcing your Christian duty to love your neighbors to the government is a sin. First of all, tell me, do you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So tell me why that's a sin. Getting caught up in the federal uh, system, there's so many demands and there's so many rules that almost uh, take you away from the the Christian faith. So... A lot of this has to do with religious concerns. Okay. I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that the church is responsible for uh, your neighborhoods, that w- that they should be more involved. Not that they give out money <laughs> right. and say, here, go buy, you, go pay your light bill. But um, we should, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. Okay. Uh, helping people find jobs. But I think we can do that without the federal government dictating that. Mm-hmm. It's already written in, in the scriptures. Federal government, they get too involved, controlling, and you lose the vision that you have for right. the, the ministry. At least what I understand, like, I guess out of every dollar that's taken from taxpayers to pay for mm-hmm. welfare or disability or whatever, yeah. what is it, 10% gets 10%. to the people? Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. pretty inefficient. Yeah. But So given that you don't take money from the federal government, you guys are operating with a, your budget's pretty big. It's, um, it's, it's pretty big. We do get funding from United Way. Okay. There are faith-based grants that you can get, and it's not federal government. There's no <laughs> federal, str- federal strings. There's no yeah. federal strings. Uh, donations, uh, sponsors uh, with uh, a home. Some of the men, they're just not able to work as soon as they come in because of the the drugs that they've been on. You get someone that will sponsor them for two months until they're able to work. Like an individual sponsor them? Individual, oh, wow. families okay. in the church. You'd be surprised at the people that want to help. They don't know how to help. Well, sure. And yeah. so t- directing them on how to help and to help smart, not by giving the person money, mm-hmm. but just sponsoring them so that we can provide what they need while we're helping them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are, are, are good about giving donations. Sometimes we, we sell plates. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do things like that, and, right. and people buy because they know it's going to a good place. Okay. If you can show people where their money is going, and we've got a person that is has become a productive citizen in Springfield from Davidson County, and now they're buying and selling in Springfield, mm-hmm. you got them. We also partner with the police department uh, with our after-school program. Um, they, t- they teach them how to swim. And um, at the YMCA, uh, they also challenge, there's a challenge that they put out that if you bring your grades up to A, B, on a row, they get a bicycle. Uh, Not only is that helpful for the kids to have that challenge and their grades go up, but it changes their views of the police Mm -hmm. department. Because now, Chief is swimming in the swimming pool with me, and the police are coming to read it to them at the after-school program. So where before you had maybe their parents that, you know, the popo is horrible, yeah. now they're seeing them in a different light. Sure. And they want them to be proud of them. So they, you know, the chances of them stealing or doing stuff is going to be slim because they know the local police. You were telling me how after-school programs are vital, especially for the black community. So you were telling me a story about one of the local schools that when you were growing up, it not only served as a school, but at, in the evening it served as a community center, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So talk about, first of all, what the name of the school was and um, how it was a good thing and then what happened to it. Well, Bransford, Bransford High School, it was the first black school, all black school in Springfield. And it was a beautiful campus. It was a beautiful campus. It's right there in the heart of the black community. And in Springfield, we do have the tracks. Mm -hmm. We were, that community was across the tracks. Mm -hmm. That was the positive thing that was across the tracks for the black community. It was this nice big school. It had a swimming pool in the back, the big gym where you could go and play um, basketball, had a football field, baseball field. So that was it. And it was supervised. It was supervised. Supervised by, um, and at that particular time, it was segregated, but not segregated, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. There was just people's choices. Mm -hmm. It was at that point, they chose to stay on this side of the tracks and Mm -hmm. other people stayed on the other side. But everything centered around that school. Um, People moved in the area of where the school was because everything was happening there. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just in education, but in recreational. It was there. They would have cooking classes. Back in the day when it was, you know, in its full glory, they had um, workshops where people were learning how to uh, fix cars. Uh, Some of the black students that were not going to college, they learned how to do construction work. A lot of the the brick homes that are still intact around the school were built by the students. Logistically, like who was in charge of this thing? The school. So the school itself, like the principal? The principal, uh, Robinson County School Department. Now, when it was no longer a school, it was old. They didn't keep it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it started going down, uh, they made it into a community center. Mm-hmm. And so people would just kind of go in. Nothing productive. A lot of uh, productive things were going on when the school started kind of going down. Yeah. They would have dances. People would just kind of hang out around the school because it was still a drawing card to the community, good or bad. But it was starting to decline. It was starting to decline. When the building started going down, the the things that went on in the building began to go down. uh, The the gym was not kept up. A tree Mm -hmm. grew in the middle of the gym. I remember that. It was awful. And the same, I think, the Springfield High School across the tracks, Uh (laughs) that school was just as old as Brantford on the other side of the tracks, but the school system kept that school up, and they didn't keep Bransford up. Mm-hmm. And when the school went down, the community went down. Those areas mm-hmm. around it went down as well. I can't explain why, but it was just that there was so much positive stuff at one time right. in that school. Well, you were telling way. me that a lot of retired teachers were volunteering to be basically the structure of the after-school program. Yes, yes. And so when they got out of it, yeah, there was they, no uh, lighthouse no. or however you want to put it. They were able. There was a committee. They were able to uh, fix up the midsection of the old school. And when they did that, they they were running the after school program through that. And it was run by retired school teachers that were well respected. The black retired school teachers mm-hmm. very well respected. So even if their parents were hard-headed and and maybe uh, on drugs when they knew their kids were going over to be taught by Miss Payne, who taught their mother when they was in school. You know, they was, oh, okay, you know. And even if they came over and they was trying to be ugly, 
they would say, "Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Payne. I'm sorry. I'm sorry." Mm-hmm. You know, it was that kind of thing. So it was it was working not only to revive the school, but it gave the retired school teachers um, a, another purpose, right. mm-hmm. okay. another purpose. And uh, we worked hard trying to get the gym up. I think you were went over and took pictures for us right. <laughs> one time. Yeah, <laughs> of the gym and yeah, the tree was my favorite part. Yeah, the tree and the gym. <laughs> I thought you were joking. I thought it was like going to be a little sapling, but my goodness, huge. Yeah, <laughs> the tree. So we tried our best to save it, and they wound up taking it down. But we're still in the process now of. Um, Building mm-hmm. uh, from the ground up, the the city has committed to two million okay. uh, dollars, and then of course we're going to be raising uh, two million as well. Right. Our after school program is still in full swing. Uh, there's a it's not centralized now. The the school behind the, uh, where the old Bransford School was is Bransford Elementary School, mm-hmm. and they let us use that school for after school program until we have a home again. <laughs> You've mentioned several times that this whole operation is Christ-centered, okay? So explain to folks that maybe have no idea what that would even mean. Like, how does Christianity make the difference? And could you do it without faith, do you think? Could you pull it off? It would be hard to pull it off because I think it's the faith that keeps you going. Um, when you talk about um, people on addiction and with, with addictions and you talk about homeless people and poverty, you're talking about um, a class of people with needs that they easily con you. People aren't sympathetic uh, normally to people on drugs. They think they need to stop. Right. And they have no idea what stop means mm-hmm. <laughs> to mm-hmm. that person. It affects not just the person on drugs, but their children. So without faith in Christ, it would be hard for me to see good in someone that's causing pain for a child. Your dad's on drugs, and you're hungry, mm-hmm. and he keeps buying drugs. But he's a child of God, and so he needs help. Right. And you try to see past the addiction. Yeah. Uh, you try to see past the homelessness and, and see that there is this is a person, a person with real needs. Whatever has happened in life has caused this. Nobody, like they always say, wakes up in the morning and say, you know what, I want to go sleep under the bridge. Right. Or, you know what, I just don't want to feed my kids. I'd rather have cocaine. Mm-hmm. And so my the, it's the faith that we have that because we're doing it for the person, and there's not an alternative mode. We don't get paid for this. <laughs> there's right. nobody that's on a salary. Um, it's, it's strictly volunteer work. Uh, my faith says that God's going to provide what we need, and he does. So I think the assumption is that if, if you're going to do charity work, that you've got to be in it 24-7, and like you'll just do that until you die, and you'll die an early death. And there are some people that did do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I know that you've kind of set boundaries. You found ways to recharge, to have your own Peggy time. Talk about that and talk about how it's important. It's real important because in the beginning I didn't do that. I had no balance. 
I thought that I was all in and there was no piggy time. As a matter of fact, I got lost in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just a nervous wreck, ulcers. Goody <laughs> <Right. laughs> Palace was my best friend. And I had to find balance in in, in that there comes a time, that, uh, there's a place in time where you have to you have to stop and have Peggy time or, or whatever. Um, Mondays are my time off, you know. I don't talk to anybody on Monday. Turn the phone off and phone is off on Mondays. Yeah. Monday's my time. I'm I'm rebooting from the weekend. Um I need to do things I enjoy. I do scrapbooking. I do things that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. I learn new recipes and I try to cook. I try not to poison my husband. Um, <laughs> I watch Andy Griffith and Gunsmoke. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a regular of, uh, I guess uh, I, I'm seen regular in Mayberry. And then when I get tired of Mayberry, I go to Dodge City. Okay. <laughs> and I can relax there with Miss Kitty and Festus and Matt. And All right. <laughs> what a fine day to take a stroll and wander by the vision hole i can't think of a better way to pass the time of day you know so but you do need that you do need that balance you need that but you can't be help to anybody else if you don't help yourself mm-hmm. um i like what they say on the airplane you know if something happens you you put the mask on yourself first and then you can help somebody else right so I had to learn that the hard way. But it's 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 vital to have you some downtime and to have balance in your life because you can't help people if you burn out. My husband and I both, uh, even in ministry, we have full time jobs. It's not a full time ministry thing. He's the director of utilities with Springfield, and I worked, of course, at at Hatch for twenty seven years, even doing this because. Um, you know, our life is our life, and um, we give to the ministry, but we also have to have money to live on and to enjoy life for ourselves. Is there anybody sunshine been turned to rain? Is there anyone's blue sky been turned to gray? If you'd like to learn more about how Greater Faith Community Action Corporation works, possibly bringing their model to your neck of the woods, or would like to pitch in in some fashion, or you know someone who could really use their help, you can visit their website at www.gfcaction.com. Peggy even says you can give her a call at area code 615-384-3740. And if you want a friend for life, tell her Goober says hey. Trust me on this one. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.